Hey everyone, we continue our read-through of the New Testament, and today we are in Revelation 11. Here we are in the midst of this interlude that exists between the 6th and 7th trumpet judgments. We saw the first part of the interlude yesterday where John is called to take and eat a little scroll, a picture of his further um, receiving power to prophesy of the revelation which is given him and the remainder of the revelation which is found in the book. And this picture is one that is both sweet to the taste, a picture of salvation, of the glorious good news of the cosmic redemption of Christ, but it is also bitter. It turns bitter in the stomach, a reminder of so many who will face judgment because of their unwillingness to receive the good news of Christ, the sweetness of the Word of God. And because of that, they will face judgment. And that is the reality of it. And that is what causes the bitterness in John's stomach. And now we get to this really interesting picture of the church, the protected church in chapter 11, which is one of the most debated uh, chapters in Revelation. There's many debates throughout the book. But chapter 11, really, there is a lot of debate regarding the identity of the temple, and the two witnesses within it. So let's go ahead and let's read the opening portion, verses 1 through 14, and then we will look at the seventh trumpet being blown in verses 15 through the end of the chapter. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the core outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. There are two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. But before, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed. In the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. People find many books puzzling. 
But the Bible is often the most puzzling of all because people find many parts that are that are puzzling, especially within Revelation. And those who find Revelation puzzling really look at chapter 11. And in the first half of the book, which chapter 11 ends, uh, people find this the most puzzling passage in the first half, the opening half of the Revelation. At one level, it's clear what it's about. John is told to measure the temple. Then two witnesses emerge doing great and strange deeds before being killed, lying unburied and then being raised to new life and exalted to heaven. The tone of the voice of the passage is quite different from much of the surrounding material. Instead of the big picture scenes of terrifying horsemen, man-eating lost, and all the rest, we seem to have a short story, albeit a very strange one, about two specific individuals, their work and their fate. But what does it all mean? And how does it fit with the rest of the book? How does it take John's vision forward? Not surprisingly, readers of Revelation have disagreed as to what it all means, but I'm inclined to agree with those who have taken broadly uh, this specific interpretation. That John's measuring of the temple, which echoes similar prophetic actions in Ezekiel 40 and Zechariah 2, has nothing to do with a literal Jerusalem temple, or even with the heavenly temple or the throne rooms of chapter 4 and 5. By the time John was writing, indeed this was true from very early on in the Christian movement, the followers of Jesus had come to see themselves as the true temple, the place where God now lived through His powerful Spirit. John is commanded to mark out this community, that is, the body of Christ, the temple of the living God, as he did in chapter 7, those who were sealed, that they might be protected against ultimate harm. However, there is another sense in which this community, in spite of it being measured and sealed, protected by God, it is also left vulnerable to in, in its walk through this present evil age. And that's the picture of the, the outer courts being trampled by the pagan nations for three and a half years. A symbolic na- number, half of the seven, which stands for completeness. Here broken down into 42 months or 1260 days. Just as Ezekiel's measuring of his visionary temple was a way of marking out the place where God was going to come to dwell. So John's marking out of this human temple, this community, is a way of signaling God's solemn intention to honor and bless this people with his presence. But what is the task and role of this people? Throughout the book of Revelation, the call of God's people is to bear faithful witness to Jesus, even though it will mean suffering and quite possibly a shameful death. The seven letters of chapters 2 and 3 continually promise special rewards to those who conquered. And this, as we saw, meant the people who, following Jesus, who themselves achieved victory through his death, were prepared to face martyrdom rather than compromise. Now, this is the part which many find particularly difficult. It appears that the two witnesses of verses 3 through 13 are a symbol for the whole church in its prophetic witness, its faithful death, and its vindication by God. Remember in the Bible, how many witnesses are necessary for a authentication of the testimony, two or three. So I believe that the picture of the two witnesses is a picture of the whole church in its prophetic, universal, and authenticated witness 
uh, as the witness of Christ. It's faithful suffering and persecution and its vindication by God at the end of the age. The church as a whole is symbolized by the lampstands, just as it was in chapter 1. And the church is to prophesy, clothed in sackcloth, as a sign of mourning for the wickedness of the world and the evil that the world brings upon itself. Why two witnesses, then? Partly, I think, because John has two great biblical stories in mind as the backdrop. First, there is the story of Moses, who stood up to Pharaoh, the pagan king of Egypt, and demonstrated God's power by the plagues, which, as we have seen, are already echoed in chapters 8 and 9. Second, there is the story of Elijah, who stood up to Ahab, the paganizing king of Israel, and demonstrated God's power by successfully praying for a drought, and then by calling down fire from heaven. John doesn't mean, though, some have thought this, that Moses and Elijah would literally return to earth and carry out what chapter 11 says. That is to mistake the sort of writing that this is. What John is saying is that the prophetic witness of the church in the great tradition of Moses and Elijah will perform powerful signs and thereby torment the surrounding unbelievers, but that the climax of their work will be their martyred death at the hands of the monster that comes up from the abyss. We haven't met this monster yet. We will in the 13th chapter. And nor have we yet discovered the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. John will make all this clear in the few chapters to follow, where we will learn that the monster is the might of the pagan empire, presently embodied by Rome, and the city is Rome itself, and in the way in which it becomes a reflection of the greater world city, the city of Babylon, a picture of the world system and all of its wickedness and perversions. The God-given and God-protected vocation to bear prophetic witness to the world does not mean that one will be spared from suffering and death, but rather that this suffering and death, just like Jesus's suffering and death, whom the church worships, will be the ultimate prophetic sign through which the world will be brought to glorify God. How does this work? For three and a half days, there we have the half of seven symbol again. The world will celebrate a victory over the church, a perceived victory. But suddenly God will act in a new way. The vision of Ezekiel 37 of God's breath coming into the dead corpses will come into reality. And the vision of Daniel 7 of God's people coming on a cloud to heaven will also come to pass. The vindication of the church after its martyrdom will complete the prophetic witness. The result will be that the world looking on will at last be, in many ways, converted and turned to the Lord. Some of them converted in a great revival at the, at the picture of the church and its powerful witness in the end, while others will merely look to God and glorify Him, just as the Scripture says, every knee will t- bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this doesn't mean a complete and total universal conversion, as some think, but rather it ultimately pictures the reality that at the end and consummation of the age, every knee indeed will bow and every tongue will indeed confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the midst of this all, we see in the way in which the monster will seek to bring war upon them. And it will look as if the church has lost for a short period. 
But the church will be vindicated when its king returns and he will come with a mighty glory, consummating his creation and bringing in a new heavens and new earth as he judges wickedness once and for all, cleanses the world through the fire of his judgment and makes a dwelling place for him and his people forever and ever as he hands the kingdom over to his father where we will forever dwell in his house forever. And that is what is seen clearly in the closing of this chapter with the blowing of the seventh trumpet and the consummation of God's cosmic plan of restoration, redemption, and retribution and the closing of this cycle. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped before God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your saints, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The This climactic and decisive moment could well have come, as we would suppose, at the very end of the book, right? And indeed, when we get to the end of the book, specifically chapters 19 and 20, we see this same kind of language reiterated. Honestly, we will see it in... Revelation 17, and we will see it in Revelation 14. We will see this over and over again, and that's important because this reminds us that we are not dealing in Revelation with a single sequence of chronological events in which the seals come first, then the trumpets, then all the materials in chapters 12 through 14 culminating in the bowls of wrath and so on. What we are dealing with is several different angles of visions on this one single great reality that through the awful turmoil and trouble of the world, God is establishing through Jesus a people who following the Lamb are to bear witness to God's kingdom through their own suffering through which the world will be brought to repentance and faith so that ultimately God will be king over all. There are no doubt a thousand different ways to say this. John has chosen three or four and here we have the climax, one of them, which also functions because John is writing at seven different levels at once as the climax to the whole of the first half of the book. Verse 19, which finishes this passage, also prepares the way for a very different cycle beginning in chapters 12 and 13, where the story, as it were, begins all over again. So we can see this cosmic drama acted out with the same result, but from a different perspective. Revelation, like its main biblical prototype, the book of Daniel, is all about the kingdom of God, which is, in my experience, one of the most misunderstood themes in the whole Bible. Far too many Christians have understood the kingdom simply in terms of God's kingdom in heaven, meaning by that God is in charge in a place called heaven as opposed to this messy place called earth from which God wants to rescue us. And that the main aim of life is to merely enter the kingdom of heaven in the sense of going to heaven when you die. Perhaps one of the many reasons why Revelation has been literally a closed book for so many and for so much of the church is that it powerfully and dramatically contradicts that popular view. God's kingdom is not simply designed for heaven. 
because God is the creator of the whole world. And his entire purpose is to reclaim the whole world as his own and to set it on the way to become the place he always intended it to be before human rebellion pulled it so disastrously off track. That, in fact, is the message of the four Gospels. Despite many generations of misunderstanding, this misunderstanding has come about partly because when Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, the other Gospels mostly using the kingdom of God, it's been easy for readers with going to heaven in their mind to suppose that what was that's what, what Matthew had in mind and what Jesus was talking about. But here it's quite clear and quite explicitly almost political in its implications that those who've designed the present altar and its surroundings, right, may have got the wrong text, but they had the right idea in the sense of the way in which heaven and earth have come together in the person of Christ Jesus. And he is bringing all things to himself, conforming them to himself through this process as he advances his kingdom into the nations. Yes, this kingdom will be a two-kingdom model in the sense that the kingdom of the world will always be at enmity with the kingdom of Christ. And that kingdom of the world will play a purpose and ultimately its own destruction and judgment. But nevertheless, that is why the church, the redeemed people, and the work that they do in the gospel mission by, by seeking to make much of the Lord throughout their mission and living of their life They are bringing glory to the God wherever they live and whatever they do. That is a picture and why we are called the first fruits of the new creation because we are a picture of what God has already inaugurated and begun and will complete in the return of Christ. A picture of what the seventh trumpet displays with the consummation of the kingdom. Notice the difference between verse 17 and passages like chapter 1, verse 4. There, John spoke of God as the one who was and is and is to come. But here he simply describes God as who is and who was. Because in this portion of the vision, the future had become the present. The is to come has become a reality. The suffering witness of the martyr church has faithfully demonstrated to the world that God is God, that Jesus is Lord and King, and the world has responded by glorifying the God of heaven. What remains now is to destroy the destroyers of earth. This is the ultimate meaning of God's judgment. So often that judgment is seen as negative, destructive, thwarting the things which humans really enjoy and want to do. This is one of the biggest lies there is. God's judgment is the judgment of the Creator on all that spoils His creation. His purposes, deep-rooted in the visions of chapter 4 and 5, are for His wonderful creation to be rescued from the forces of those anti-Christ realities, those things which are against Christ, against His good, against His people, against all that is righteous, against all that is life. It's time that death will fully die. The Song of the Elders evokes another moment like that of chapters 4, 5, and chapters 8, 5, with lightning, thunder, and the rest. These are the moments of transition, the moments when earth itself will tremble at the power of the heavenly revelation of earth and heaven now becoming one forever. In addition, for the only time in the book, John says that as God's temple in heaven was opened, revealing his throne room with its song of triumph, so the ark of his covenant appeared inside. There has been much speculation in Jewish circles about 
whether the ark, the box containing the Ten Commandments and the other key symbols of the, the ancient covenant would be restored in the new temple. But here its appearance seems to signify that God has at last been true to every one of His covenant promises. That is why it's open. Because everything within it has been fully completed in the perfect work and consummation of Christ. What He said He would do, He has now done. He has taken His power and He has begun to reign forever. And that closes this cyclical vision as a new one begins in chapter 12. God bless.